Hi, I'm Clara, and this is the Practice with Clara podcast, where we go into yoga philosophy and how it makes your life better. Subscribe to the podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Practice with Clara podcast. I'm Clara, and I'm sitting with my co-host, Stephanie. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Bernie Clark, who is, I would say, the yin master of uh, the West Coast, as well as an author and a yoga teacher and trainer. And so thank you so much for uh, joining us and sharing uh, all your wonderful knowledge with us. Thanks, Clara and Stephanie. It's a delight to be here. So Bernie, we like to open by asking our guests three random questions for our listeners to get to know you. The first question, the first question is, if you could choose any era to be born in, what period would you choose and why? Probably the 22nd to 23rd century, about 100 years from now. I'm really, curi- I'm really okay. curious to see what's going to be happening then. You know, will we have, have we calmed down global warming? Have we got uh, you know, new forms of energy? Are we actually in the, the stars and the planets? Uh, I'm just pissed off I'm going to die before all that really happens. So I'd really like to see the, that. That's cool. You're the first person who mm-hmm. said the future. It's an era to awesome. come. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, our second question is, if you, uh, what do you think your superpower <laughs> is? I remember reading way back when Herman Hess, when I was a teenager, I, I read all Herman Hess's books. And in his book, Siddhartha, the, the man's superpower there kind of stuck with me. And that was his ability to just sit. Despite whatever happens around you, to just be able to sit and be present, and this too will pass. And so like, that's kind of the superpower I always try to work on, just being able to sit and be with what's happening. Beautiful, beautiful. Our, um, our third question is, what are three things that you uh, never leave the house without? Three physical things and then three abstract things. <clears throat> Well, um, probably clothes. I've never left the house without clothes. <laughs> and in Canada, it'd be a little one. chilly, so I'd know right away. Uh, secondly, most of the time, I take my keys. Um, and thirdly, unfortunately, these days, this, this device here. So it's not that I necessarily think about it, but those are the three things I know I always have with me. My keys, my clothes, and my cell phone. I guess they all begin with, you know, Okay. Yeah, I think everybody doesn't leave, no longer leaves the house without abstract. a cell phone, abstract. unfortunately. I have to think about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I usually leave with an intention. There's a reason I'm leaving the house. Beautiful. Uh, you know, I'm either off yes. to do some chores or I'm off to take a walk. Or, so I always have something in mind. I, I don't recall ever leaving the house without reason. So, so I guess that's abstract. I had to come up with two more. Two more. Mm. Yes. <laughs> If you can think of it, if not, no worries. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to you sit down and write that, that out. Intention. I think with my hands better than with my, okay. with my voice. So. I don't know what the other two would be. Okay. Okay. Well, perfect. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, we wanted to start off by uh, asking you, um, how did you come to yoga? Well, I guess it depends on what you define yoga to be. I took up meditation in my early 20s mm-hmm. to deal with stress in the business world. I was not in the high-tech industry selling, and the stress was just getting to me. And I asked my manager's manager what he did to deal with stress, and he said he meditated. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, I'll give that a try. 
So I, I dove into Zen meditation when I was about 22, 23. And it wasn't until 20 years later that I was looking for a sangha to sit with. And I, I found out yes. there's a new place that just opened up in Vancouver called the Pranite Yoga and Zen Center. So I thought, okay, Zen. So okay. I went there for Zen. And the owner at the time, uh, called Shakti Mai, she kept saying I should try yoga. And I didn't want to try the yoga. I was just there for the Zen. I was just there for the meditation three times a week. And, but she convinced me by saying the magic words. She said, yoga will really help your golf game. And, and as an added golfer, which is a very Zen sport, I thought, well, if it's going to help my golf game, yeah, I'll try it. And so I tried it, and she was right. It definitely did help my golf game. So. But then as I got more and more into yoga, I realized the point of yoga is to meditate. And so I've been doing that since my 20s. Yes. It wasn't until my early 40s that I added the asana, you know, the physical part. But that was to help my meditation yes. part. So I guess I got into yoga like over 40 years ago. But the asanas, I've been only doing those for just over 20 years. Okay. And then um, your specialty, your kind of, at least essentially what you teach is yin yoga. And so I'd love you to define uh, for our listeners, what is yin yoga and, yeah. and why yin yoga? Well, right, let's start. Uh, I don't just do yin yoga and I just don't teach yin yoga. You need balance in life. So we have yin and yang. Uh -huh. uh, I say yang, some people in America will say yang, and our culture is full of gangsters. And we are very driven, you know, go, 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 let's do more, <laughs> yes, let's do we more. Are. You think of every New Year's resolution, it's hard to ever to accept the way you are, it's always to change something. This year I'm going to stop doing this, mm -hmm. or I'm going to start doing this, and that's very yang. In yin, it's much more the yes. other way, it's accepting something, it's less striving. And being a type A yangster, Type A for Ashtanga. That was my favorite sort of practice, which is go, go, go. Let's break those knees. Let's keep going. Yes. Which I did. I broke both my knees. <laughs> but I needed to balance that. I was burning out. By the time I hit 50, yes. I was, I love Ashtanga, but it was unrequited. It didn't love me anymore. So I needed to find a balance. Yes. And it just was coincidental that I came across Yin Yoga through the teachings of Sarah Powers. And through Sarah, I met Paul Gulley as well. Mm. And I just fell in love with that. At first, I hated it because it was hard, but it was simple. But I really realized I needed to balance my yang activities with my yin activities. So like everything in life, you need balance. So I wouldn't say always do yin yes. or just only do yin. But if you're only doing yang, yes. and most people in our world, that's, that's the culture, then you need, you need to the balance too, yeah. So yin yoga is the other half of your yoga practice. Now, there's a lot of other details we can get into behind that, but it's the other half. That's so cool that you brought up, um, like with New Year's resolutions, I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about um, how planning and kind of projecting yourself out in the world versus sitting back and looking at like little signs mm -hmm. from the universe. Mm. And I'm the same where I'm always like list of things to do and this is what I want to accomplish and how I want to be in 2021, what have you. And I think since the beginning of probably COVID, like last spring, I'm trying to be more yin, more receptive and like step back and see the little signs that are coming to me, like how I feel after certain things or like what appears in my landscape in terms of nature, animals or whatever that are like little signals from the universe. Like, okay, this is the path, even though maybe I'm doing nothing in that right. moment. 
So I love, I love that you commented on the receptivity versus action because that's where we're headed as we shift into 2021. Everyone wants to write down what they want to look like or achieve or. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's bad to do that, but you think most resolutions are, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to reduce drinking. It's always, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to exercise regularly. I'm going to get a new job. I am going to do this. So those are all young like, and that's great. But how about this year yes. you take a resolution, I'm going to accept me the way I am. I'm not going to you know, worry about losing weight or something because I've tried that for 20 years. And this is just the way I am. I'm going to accept that. So there can be an urge to change, which is good. But there can also be an urge to just accept what is. Yes, yes. Um, and then just, just in terms of defining yin, how would you define it? Well, after the elevator speech of yin yoga's the other half, if you think <laughs> there, there could be yin parts of the body, yang parts of the body, yin parts of our life, yang parts of our life, like sleeping is yin, getting up and running around doing your work, that could be yang. But yin and yang always need a context. These are relative adjectives. It's not an absolute. It's not a noun. Yes. Like hot water. Is hot water yin or yang? Well, it depends. Compared to boiling water, hot water is yin. Yes. It's cold water yin or yang. You know, compared to ice, cold water is yang. So there's nothing that's absolutely yin or absolutely yang. If we think of muscles versus fascia, muscles are active. Mm-hmm. I have to make an effort to contract the muscles. Fascia is kind of springy, like your Achilles tendon, your plantar fascia. Every time you walk or you run or you jump, these fascial things, they're elastic. They stretch a little bit. And then they snap mm-hmm. back. You don't have to will your Achilles tendon to retract. So that's yin-like. So we have right. active movements. A lot of vinyasa, ashtanga, that's pretty active. You're using your muscles a lot. And then we have passive movements, things that we just allow to happen. So in yin yoga, we're targeting these more passive tissues, the fascia, the ligaments, okay. the joint capsules. And a lot of people, when I first started teaching yin yoga, they were horrified because they thought I was... Exercising joints. You should never exercise joints. You should never stretch ligaments. Well, that's not strictly true. But they have a different definition of exercise than I do. They have a yang definition. A yang definition is a lot of repetitive rhythmic movement. And if that's what I was doing to my mm-hmm. joints, that would, I'd be afraid of that too. Imagine a credit card that you move back and forth over and over and over again. Eventually, it'll just break. So if that's what we were doing to our yin tissues, people would be right to be horrified. But we're not. We're applying a yin stress, which is a long-held static stress. Think of attraction. Right. Somebody gets a broken leg or whatever, and the doctor puts it in traction. It's a long-held static stress. Think of braces. People wear braces for years. They don't take them out every 20 minutes and put them back in again. That's a yin stress, and that's what you need to affect the bones. You need that constant stress. Got it. So for our deeper connective tissues or yin-like tissues, you need a different form of exercise or load or stress. So health needs both. You need to work the muscles. You need that active rhythmic yang movement. But when are you going to work the deeper tissues? When you do that, you need the long-held static stresses. Apply the traction to those tissues. Bernie, I'm curious what, um, because you mentioned that you did all, all different styles of yoga. So what led you to the yin uh, training, like why? Why did you choose to focus more so on yin, right. at least publicly? Well, it's all serendipity. <laughs> I was uh, in my Ashtanga practice. I don't know if you know Ashtanga. 
the, the teaching is a lot of adjustments, hand-on manipulation, putting people in the postures. And as much as I tried to develop my x-ray vision, I failed. I remember as a kid, there used to be at the end of comic books, and you'd read Spider-Man, there'd be a little coupon saying, get your x-ray glasses here. So I'd send away for those yes. with two box tops of Kellogg's cornflakes, and I got them, but they didn't work. I couldn't see inside the body. So I decided to take up massage training, Thai yoga massage. And my teacher was Saul David Ray. I went through one training with him, 10 days, and I was going back for an advanced course with him, a nine-day course in, in Santa Barbara. And every morning, Saul would start with a yoga practice. And on the last day, I guess he ran out of ideas. It's 2003, I think, 2002. So he said, how about we do a yin class? And I'd never heard of that before. So we all said, what's that? So he did a, a yin class. He led us through this. And I've thanked Saul for that over the years. And he said, you know, I don't remember that. And I'm not a yin guy. I just, you know, I guess I ran out of ideas that day. So he had heard about what Paul really had been doing. And he led us through that. And yes. I probably won't even thought about it again, except the next day we were flying home. And I was, had some time to kill in Santa Barbara. I was walking up and down State Street. And there was a little yoga studio just off the corner there. So I walked in because they had a little bookstore. And in it, there was a, a VHS. I was going to say DVD, but back those days, they had the, this thing called videotape. And it was some lady yes. named Sarah Powers that was called Jin Yoga. So I thought, oh, that's what Saul led us through. So I bought the, the video, and I took it home. And I did that hey. every day for three months. And I was surprised at how it improved my vinyasa, my Ashtanga practice. There is a pose called yes. Prasarita Padottanasana A, where you have your legs wide apart and you bring your head to the floor. And after five years of doing a morning Mysore practice, I still couldn't get my head to the floor. But after three months of doing Sarah Power mm. Jin practice, my head was in the floor. What was stopping okay. me was not the muscles, it was the connective tissues. And so I resolved to meet her. And she was coming to a, a Northwest Yoga Festival that year in Seattle. So I drove down there and met her. And then through her, I met Paul. And I took their teacher trainings. And I realized I needed to do both of these things. And one day in the teacher training, I should have been paying attention to Paul and Sarah, but my mind wandered. I guess this was already 2004 or something like that. And I wondered, who has the URL, the domain name, yinyoga.com? Being a nerdy technical guy, I've got a degree in physics. I think about these things while I'm holding a pose and I should be concentrating mindfully. So I just made a little <laughs> mental note to check. And when I got home, nobody had it. So I bought the domain name thinking I'd give it to Paul. But Paul already had his domain, paulreally.com. He didn't really want it. So I, I kept it for a few weeks, a few months. And then I got asked to give a training on yin yoga in Vancouver. So I decided, well, I'm going to take the slides I had created for that training and I'm going to put them on the website. So I did that and I realized, well, the slides don't talk to themselves. So I had to write a whole bunch of text around yes. that. And then people said, that text is great, but it's too much to read online. Can you make it into a PDF? So I did that and then people said, well, the PDF is too big for my printer. Can you make it into a book? So I did that and it was called Insights. Cool. This is 2007. Okay. So I, I never really intended yes. to become sort of well-known with Yin. It's just... I created this website, I started teaching what Paul and Sarah taught me, and then I created this book, and then suddenly it all bloomed from there. So it wasn't a great laid plan, it just sort of happened. Talk about receiving signs from the universe. <laughs> the door opens, you walk through. Like, that's just so, yes. It's yes. amazing. That's so cool. And then, did you, had you always had aspirations <clears throat> to be a writer? 
Because you've written quite a few books yeah, since then. I'm not sure. I think so, because I, I have a lot of half-written novels. I'm not very good at writing fiction, but I have lots of ideas. And in my sales okay. job, and I got a degree in physics, but I've also was in the high-tech world where I was selling. So I had to write proposals and I had to make presentations. So I was always presenting things. So, you know, my youngest brother, he's a musician and a teacher. My middle-aged brother, he's a professor at McGill. So I guess teaching was kind of in the family. And so I've always wanted to teach, whether it was in sales or whatever. So I started to teach yoga as well as a, you know, just as a hobby. And then eventually it just became more and more and I quit my day job and just did the yoga stuff. But Paul was so good at understanding why the yoga worked and his understanding of skeletal right. variations. As I think in the States they call it skeletal variations. But skeletal variation sounds better to me. His understanding yes. that we're all different made a huge impact on my, my teaching. I got away from the aesthetic cues of making people look the same instead figuring out, well, what does their yes. body need? And I kept nagging him, well, you know, Paul, you got to write this down in a book. He did a wonderful DVD, but you need to go deeper. And he said, I'm not into writing books. So I said, well, if you don't, I'll have to. And he said, yeah, go, go ahead, do it. So basically, I just I wanted to describe what Paul had discovered and in doing that, I had to do a lot more research because skeletal variation goes into so many directions. So it just, I don't know, just kind of pulled me in that direction. I had to just write down these things I was discovering. That's so, so cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that that was your story and that you, so when you taught yoga initially, were you just teaching yin? Like it sounds like the yin progression was just like happenstance. So when you were initially teaching, was it like Ashtanga yoga yeah, was, or was it well, focused Shakti on Well, Shakti Mai, the founder of uh, the Prana Yoga and Zen Center, she spent a number of years in the Shivananda tradition, but she kind of broke away from that and created mm -hmm. her own unique interpretation of yoga. So I learned from her. And so there's a strong Shivananda type flavor, but also through Shakti Mai's own unique inflection. But then I met David Swenson and Tim Miller and I got into the Ashtanga routine, and also trained yes. a little bit with Eric Schiffman and Shiva Ray. So that got me into more vinyasa flow okay. type stuff. I was influenced a lot in those days too by Brian Kest, which is you know, very radical type stuff. Mm. Uh, so all that was happening, and this was you know, seven years before I'd ever heard about yin yoga. So yin yoga just, it didn't end all that. It just gave me another way to sort of balance myself because I was, you know, as I said, when I hit my 50s, I couldn't keep doing that that Ashtanga practice anymore. It was just wearing me out. Yes. So what advice would you give like yogis or the lay person today in terms of creating a home practice for themselves? Yeah. Like what are some of the key learnings that you would pass? Well, pass in my on? realization, there's, there's three components, three orthogonal components to physical health. There, there's strength. Yes. You need to work on strength. And I found when I first started doing power yoga, I, I couldn't believe how hard it was. I remember getting a, a, a video. It was um, Rod Stryker. He was working with uh, Kathy, I can't remember her last name, but it was a power yoga thing. And so I was trying that, and it just kicked my ass. It was just so hard. Then after a year of doing Ashtanga, I went back and I tried that video again. I couldn't believe how easy it was. I found that you know, mm. through the practice, after a year or so, I was getting stronger and stronger, but then I plateaued. I could work with yes. my own body weight, but that's all you do in yoga. 
So today, I also swing kettlebells and do other things. I still like doing push-ups and handstands, but I do need kettlebells and other stuff. So strength, yes. I need to work on strength. Second is endurance. You know, I'd sweat like crazy during my Ashtanga practice, but again, you tend to plateau. And there's only so much the heart rate can go up in that practice. It doesn't really give you a high-intensity interval training. So I will run sprints or I'll do stair climbing. Where I live right now, there's 200 steps from the seashore to the top of the, the road where the cul-de-sac is. So going up and down that a few times, that, that can really get the heart going. So I need strength, I need endurance, and then yes. I need mobility. Now for mobility, I didn't say flexibility, we can talk about that, but for mobility, I do my yin practice because that's keeping yes. the joints and everything very mobile. So to me, all these things can be yoga. Yoga isn't what you do. Yoga is how you do what you do. I stole that from Brian Kesk 20 years ago. Yoga is what you do. Sorry, how you do what you do. So you can, you can yes. do kettlebells and make that part of your yoga. Yeah, and do you yoga. Can, you can do stair climbing, yes. and that can still be your yoga. It's the attitude and the attention you bring to it. Yeah, that's something Clara says a lot, that you can be doing your yoga while yeah. brushing your teeth or spending time with your babe or whatever yeah, it is. Yoga is meditation. Yeah. Yoga can be happening all yoga the time. Yoga starts with this meditation yeah, exactly. or mindfulness practice. Well, you can do that 24 hours a day almost, except when you're sleeping. <laughs> yeah, then you're doing a different right. kind of yoga, right. yoga nidra. <laughs> And there's apparently some superstar yogi can actually be mindful while they're sleeping, lucid dream. While they're sleeping, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And so, Bernie, you also mentioned that the yoga was just a means to get you closer to your meditation practice. Yeah. Um, what, does, what does your meditation practice look like right. these days? Because yes. oh, yeah, it shifted. Yeah. Every decade, Great. things are changing. Um, exactly. Well, sometime around middle 2000s, I really got enamored with the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a mm -hmm. Zen monk from Vietnam. He uh, was kicked out of Vietnam during the war, the Vietnamese War. He was, he was born in Hawaii, which is right in the middle of Vietnam, right where the border was. So the people in the north thought he was a southerner, the people in the south thought he was a northerner. And he'd always say, no, I come from the middle. And as a monk, he would always lead these peace marches. And he was in... Uh, Berkeley or something like that one time in 63, 64, and the Vietnam government wouldn't let him back into the country, so he was in exile. And he started his monastery in the south of France in a place called Plum Village, about 100 miles east of Bordeaux. And I came across his writings and I resolved to kind of go to him as well, so I went to Plum Village and he also opened up a monastery in California, near Encinitas. And he also was invited back to Vietnam around 2008, 2009, and he invited some of his followers to come with him as well. So I got to tour with him up and down Vietnam. And he is kind of like a Zen light master. <clears throat> Whereas I started with Zazen, he which is. is kind of the Japanese samurai warrior type of Zen, yeah. where you're just sitting very rigidly and somebody will beat you with a stick if you kind of fall asleep. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh is kind of Zen light. And at that time in my life, I think I needed to be less strict about it. And really, he's the one that taught me about being mindful on a daily basis. He has meditations he calls like yeah. the red light meditation. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh doesn't drive, but when his driver is driving down the street and the light turns yellow, most of us will speed up to make the light. And he tells his driver, slow down. And the driver says, why? Slow down. So he slows down, now he's got red light. 
Now for 30 seconds, he can do a red light meditation. He can just sit and watch mm. the breath and not have to worry about traffic and then go again. So his teaching was to bring this mindfulness into everyday practice. And really, that's my meditation today. I will still do a, a formal sitting every morning, but it's just throughout the day, I'm trying to remind myself to come back, come back, return. Now, meditation, a lot of people think they can't meditate because they have too many thoughts. And I remember a friend of mine, Ian Finn, saying that people say they can't do yoga because they're not flexible. That's like saying I'm too dirty yeah. to take a shower. <laughs> I can't meditate because i got too many thoughts. Okay. You know, I'm too dirty to have a shower. But that's kind of why you meditate. Yeah. But meditation is not to kill the thoughts. It's just to be able to come back. The real power is the returning. Yes. Not staying because nobody will stay. It's just noticing when you're gone and coming back. So throughout the day, I'm just trying to return to the present moment. I uh, remember that uh, one of the first books on meditation I ever read was actually mm. by Thich Nhat Hanh, and mm. that's where I got the idea of yoga being everything. Mm. And like, I remember uh, one specific uh, passage about when washing dishes to be fully right. washing the dishes, to feel the soap, to feel the uh, sponge, to feel the water, to be like fully immersed in the act while doing it. And I remember, yeah, his writing is so simple but so powerful in its yeah. simplicity. And I love that. So I remember for a while, and like when right. brushing your teeth, like to just feel the, to feel the texture on your on your your gums, and to taste the toothpaste, and you know to really be in it. Um, so I love that. Yeah, I love that you brought him up. He is. It's so simple yet so profound, as so many of the teachings are. Some some of these. That's so cool that you were able to say with him. Some of these things are a little tricky in that. Yes. yes. When you're doing one thing, do that one thing. The Buddha said, when a monk is walking forward he knows that he's walking forward. When the monk is walking backwards, he knows he's walking backwards. So you do one thing. But as hard as I try, <clears throat> I find it very difficult just to do one thing when I'm eating. I'm usually multitasking. Mm. But I, I rationalize yes. that, <clears throat> because we're very good at rationalizing, because of a Zen story of a master who was always saying this, you know, when you're doing one thing, just do the one thing. Then one day, his monks discovered him eating breakfast while reading the paper. And they all went, aha, aha, see, see, you're doing two things. <laughs> and he just calmly put the paper down and looked up at his monk and said, when you're eating breakfast and reading the paper, just eat your breakfast and read the paper. <laughs> yes. So I thought, okay, I can do that then. <clears throat> and there are definitely times uh, where I feel like you're multitasking, but the I feel like the idea, and he, he you just said it perfectly, is uh, just be mindful or aware of whatever it is that you're doing and that you, and for me, it's like, you always have a choice. Like you can choose to read the paper right. and eat, or you can choose to brush your teeth and think about what you're going to be doing later that day or what have you. But the idea, at least for me is the idea is to anchor into one or anchor right. into the now. So whatever is happening now versus like, what's going to like, for me, it was always uh, when I first started doing yoga in the forward folding part of the class, I was always thinking about like what I was going to be having for lunch. I was like, okay, like this is, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to order this and it's going to taste like this. And, you know, and then I'd be like, oh, right, come back to the forward fold or what have you. Um, so it's just like, I love that idea that you said of like returning. Cause that's, right. that's what it is. Cause we will, we will, the mind naturally goes out. That's, that's the job is it's, it's thinking of the next thing or anticipating what may be happening next or reflecting on what happened before. Another yoga teacher, oh. sorry, another meditation teacher that influenced me a lot yeah. was Charlotte Joko Beck. She ran the San Diego Zen okay. Center and wrote a couple of beautiful books like Everyday Zen and Nothing Special. 
And I got to meet her as well. <laughs> Nothing special. special. Everything is just just life. <laughs> yep. And exactly. She also says that you know she's very mindful. She passed on many years ago, but uh, she lived her life, and then she became a monk when she was a grandmother, and eventually the abbotess of the San Diego Zen Center. But she said that sometimes she would just let her mind wander, and she'd give her permission, like fifteen minutes, once or twice a week, to just daydream. And she always went to an oh, island. Yeah. And over the years, she's making this island. She would build this island up, and she would just allow her mind to wander. So you don't always have to be so rigid. You can always have to control. It. Yeah. There's times when you can just let it go. Now, as we know now, it's something called the default mode network. The brain is meant to just spin and daydream. That's a powerful part yes. of training the brain. Yes, navel gaze. So it doesn't mean you mm-hmm. always have to be. And I feel like some of your <clears throat> best ideas happen. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel like, uh, and, and Steph, um, you might want to even speak in terms of your own process as a writer as well, but like the navel gazing, as I like to call it, meaning the daydreaming is like so important because at least for me, a lot of my ideas come from that place when I kind of, I'm, yeah, free to roam. My mind is free to go. And then all of a sudden, you know, yeah. not all the time, but sometimes things kind of start to drop in where you're like, oh, I wouldn't have That's thought of that. That's the the young mind is when we're controlled, we're yeah. focused, we're concentrating. The in mind is, okay, just drift off. We need both. You do. Actually, um, I'm going to paraphrase this, and I might get some of the terms wrong, but I was reading, a, and I, we can share it in the uh, episode. I'll link it in the episode. So when you're thinking, your brain is um, shooting messages through the neurons all day. And one of the, one of the studies that's being, um, shown, I guess it's, they did it on mice like seven years ago, but now they're saying that when we're sleeping specifically in REM sleep, your cerebral spinal fluid clears your brain. It washes through the brain. And kind of, if you think like writing on a whiteboard and then wiping all of the notes away from your day, that's how I envision like the cerebral spinal fluid kind of washing and wiping away the all the messages that the mind is creating all day. And meditation is one of the practices that we do that can assist in that process. They're saying it's why meditation is so important because you're trying, you're essentially trying to clear the mind and not to think. So you're coming back to that clean uh, Mm. slate. I I haven't heard of that. I heard something similar that we have something called the lymphatic system, like the lymph system Mm -hmm. helps to Mm -hmm. clear away toxins through the the thing, but through the brain we have it. Like lymphatic system, and we get these these the neurons actually shrink at night, creating more space for the lymph fluid to flow. And they find that okay. lying your side with your head turned, it flows and cleans all the amyloid and plaques and other things that happen. If you're lying on your back, yes. it doesn't flow quite so well. At least in rats. So interesting. We don't know about humans, but. <laughs> I was like, how are they measuring that? <laughs> And are we, should we be lying on our side? Interesting. Um, I never sleep on my side. We've got these cells in the brain called glia, <laughs> glia cells, and they kind of are the maintenance group. And so the glia lymphatic system is the lymphatic system. So at night, you're right, it's, it's cleaning okay. all the, the neurons and so forth. So it might be related to what you were saying, because there, there is a house cleaning going on yeah. at night when you sleep. So cool. I didn't know it cleaned all the, like, the plaques that build up. And they're... Another article I read was saying that excess, some of the excess plaques are what's causing yeah, Alzheimer's. The, the beta amyloid plaques. Ah. And there's genetic predispositions yes. to that. 
and there's lifestyle predispositions to that. But we haven't quite figured out if the plaque is a cause of Alzheimer's or a consequence of Alzheimer's yet. But certainly correlated right. with Alzheimer's. Okay. Hmm. I, w- I want to come back to... Um, yes, yoga. <laughs> I, I find it interesting that... No, no it's so good. But uh, kind of building on this um, is that uh, you studied science, you studied physics, and I... Uh, there is like a very, at least uh, I studied with Shiva in the, for a long time, but in the early 2000s, like when with the bleep do we know came out and all that, and the idea of quantum physics and how it's kind of, uh, it's essentially proving that everything is energy. And I find that a lot of people who study physics are quite mystical. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, uh, Bernie, for you in terms of your, your journey, like how did, why physics and and was there like a mystical component to it or did it come to you later or is there a correlation yeah, for definitely. you there's always been a correlation when i was even a young child i always wanted to know why and how and uh, at some point i i love studying mythology i love studying religions comparative religions i was very much influenced by yes. um, unfortunately he's not well known right now but joseph campbell who is an american mythologist uh, my dad's hero. Yes, uh, he, he influenced me a lot. I wrote, I wrote a whole book on this called From the Gita to the Grail. Uh, so I've always been yes. fascinated by the mind, how it works, psychology, union psychology, neuro, neurology. But I also want to know how the universe works. So there's my draw into physics. And I love to build the bridges between East and West. Because in the East, we have certain experiences. And you cannot deny an experience. Yes. It's an anecdote, but it's a fact. And somehow we have to describe the scientific models or the maps, if you will. They have to accommodate these experiences. And some of the experiences don't fit on our maps. So it doesn't mean that the experience is wrong. It means the maps have to be improved. And so I'm always looking at ways, can we explain what people in the East experienced with our current Western maps if we just see them in different ways? And so we can invoke things like quantum entanglement and spooky action at a distance that Einstein hated. Einstein spent the rest of his life trying to disprove quantum mechanics. But this is one of the most robust findings of physics, this entanglement and action at a distance. So we we know it it works that way. We don't understand how it can possibly work that way, but we know it works that way. But the other side of the coin is a lot of new age wellness people have taken the buzzwords from quantum physics and really misappropriated them and applied them in ways that, you know, as Richard Feynman once said, he's a famous physicist of the last century, nobody understands quantum mechanics. And he was one of the most brilliant minds in the world. He didn't understand it. So we have to be careful when we use these terms. And I know, I know enough to know mm-hmm. that when it's being used just as marketing. And so I, I can get lots of yes. sort of stuff and, excuse my French, but it's basically blah, 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 bullshit, blah, 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 bullshit, blah, blah, blah. They're just throwing out quantum mechanical terms in a totally inappropriate way yes. to try and sell some sort of a product. So I can see the, the shysters right. and the frauds using this stuff, which is unfortunate because it takes credibility away from the people who are seriously trying to look at this. Yes. So I have two sort of minds of it. People that are just exploiting the terminology because they realize nobody understands it, so they can't be called out too much on it. And people who are seriously trying to figure out how can we explain what's happening. Yes. There was a beautiful documentary. Uh, did you see it called The God Particle? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it, no. Okay, it's a, it's a documentary on um, 
physicists, engineers, a bunch of people who are working in CERN yeah, in Switzerland. A, yeah. I think it's in Switzerland. Yeah, Large Hadron Collider. They're trying to figure out, you know, does this... Uh, Is there yeah. a God particle? That's what they were, if they split it up, right? If they split it up to... What, what they're looking ahead, at is... Get, there's get a, in there, Bernie. It, it gets weird into physics, but there's a particle that gives everything mass. They call it the Higgs boson. It was named after Peter okay. Higgs and a couple other people got it. And we had, we had speculated that it existed, but we needed a lot of energy to actually create one. And so when the CERN yes. new... Uh, collider was made, we can actually get enough energy to actually create one, and they discovered, yes, there's the Higgs boson. Now, unfortunately, some other marketing-type people called it the God particle. The, the, the physicists never really liked that term, because that's nothing to do with God. It's sure. just this mysterious particle that gives everything mass. So a proton has mass, because it's enveloped in the Higgs field. An electron has less mass, because yes. it too is because of the Higgs field. So we finally discovered, we actually created this Higgs particle, and it fit with all the theories. So it just nicely fit into the, uh, the standard model of, of atomic physics. But to call it the God particle, that was kind of marketing buzz. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the spiritual well, I think nature. What, no, well, they, I think they were talking about, the, or how they defined it in the documentary was uh, the part that right. they could not explain. And they're like, is this, you know, um, and some people, like, yeah, you're right. Some people were not into it, but I think that they, they definitely did it for marketing right. in terms it of... It sounds very mysterious. Like, what is this God particle? Well, now we can explain it. So now we have to explain other things yes. like dark matter. We have no idea what that is, or dark energy. So there's a lot of God particles still out there, things we don't know. 95% of the universe is That was a really... Only 5% of the universe is just Which is crazy. what we know as electrons, protons, neutrons. The rest is it. We don't know yet. And it's the same with our brain, right? Like we, there's, we only use a, a very small percentage of our brain, and the other part, they're like, we don't know no, what's going on there. That's another urban legend. Yeah, we use, okay. we use 100% Great. of our brain. Debunk it. <clears throat> we use our brain. We use a whole brain. Mother Nature is not that careless. She wouldn't create something right. that we're only using. Yeah, she wouldn't use it. Except we use it all. But there was a okay. time when we could only define, so then, like when you're in a sleep state or something like that. I can't remember exactly how this myth started, but somebody did a measurement and found that in this particular thing, yes. only like 10% of the electrical activity was happening. But that was, okay. was a bad experiment and it was a bad extrapolation. <laughs> but it stuck there in the, in the urban legend land. Yeah. It totally did. I feel, I was like, I feel like I read that recently. Oh, yeah. People so keep quoting it. I'm like now wondering how many, yeah, yeah. yeah. how many myths like I'm WC. part of. Like what? kids sitting <laughs> W style? You know, where they sit between their feet and they open their feet up. So their knees look like a W. Okay. A lot of parents freak oh, out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because way back when there was one paper written about how this might be not good for some, some children. And that got quoted and then right. recorded. And now it's in the common domain that you should never let your kids sit between their feet. It's bad for them. When I was doing research for my first Your Body, Your Yoga book, I tried to figure out, well, where are the studies yes. on this? And it turns out there are no studies, but there was one particular paper that said for some children, they shouldn't sit like this depending on the shape of the hip sockets. Huh. And that just took on a life right. of its own, so everyone knows kids shouldn't sit between their feet. Except they do, because for them it's a natural way to use their core strength. And adults, you know, if I was yes. to sit between my feet, I'd break my knees. But there's a lot of people who have the hip sockets right. for it and can internally rotate, yes. no problem. It doesn't come from their knees, it comes yes. from their hips. So for them to the WC, right. no problem. So you no get problem. all these urban yeah. myths out there that actually have no scientific basis. 
let's talk about uh, how you're interested in mythology, Bernie. Tell us about your book from the Gita to the Grail. Well, again, as I said, I was very influenced by the writings of <clears throat> Joseph Campbell. He died in 1984, or 86. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1904 in White Plains, New York. And he did this wonderful PBS series called The Power of Myth, which was an interview with Bill Moyers. And that's how I came to know him. But unfortunately, he died just before that show aired. So he never got to see you know, how famous he became afterwards. <clears throat> but after being introduced to him, I read everything he wrote. He was a professor at uh, oh, Sarah Lawrence? Lawrence University in the East Coast. Yes. And he taught mythology to his students. And, but he was teaching comparative mythologies and how, in his view, there was something called a monomyth. Now, he wasn't the first to think of that. But yeah. These motifs that kept reappearing in all cultures. Like everyone, all cultures had the idea of a great flood. It wasn't just in the, the Hebrew Bible. You One. found it in yes. North American um, mythology, and you find it in Asian mythology. So we always had these motifs reappearing. And Campbell told, said that there's four main functions of myth. There's the, the cosmological function that explains why we are here, how we came to be. And all cultures had their, this is how we came to be story whether it's the myth of Genesis, yeah. and God created the universe in six days and rested. And then there's the sociological function, and that's to put you in your place in society. You are born to do a certain mm-hmm. thing. That's your dharma in the Indian yeah. lore. You are born to be a kshatri. You're born to be a shudra. You're born to be a brahmin. You have your, your role, your caste, if you like, and that's what you're born to do. That's backed up by the, the myths the social myths. Then you have your psychological function. This is going to describe <clears throat> how you deal with the arc of aging, the stories that you do when you're a yes. child, what you do when you become a teenager, a young adult, how to raise a family, what you do when you're a grandparent, going to the forest, becoming a guru. All that's described by the culture's myths and how you relate to your own thing. And then the biggest, most important thing is the mystical. What's it all about? Why are we here? Yes. So myths have these four functions, and some will only serve one function to tell you how you're supposed to be. Some will serve multiple functions. But I really liked his way of explaining the various stories, from King Arthur, uh, the story of Parsifal, to the story of Shiva, to Bindumati, who was uh, explaining to King Ashoka how she could make the Ganges River back up because she could speak a word of truth. Mm-hmm. So all these stories just mm-hmm. fascinated me. So I had to compile them all into this one book. How do Westerners understand Eastern myths and yoga stories? Okay. What do you yes. think your biggest takeaway uh, in terms of doing the research and writing it? Like for you, yeah, your experience of, of Well, it. to learn something, try to teach it. If you're not a teacher, try to write mm-hmm. about it. I never, went, I never went to teaching expecting to teach. I just was fascinated with it. And I just want to learn more. Yes. And the same with my writing. You know, I'm, I'm very gratified that people actually want to buy my books and read it. But I wrote because I just needed to get this out there. And then I'd be writing, and then I'd stop, and I'd say something. I think, well, how do we know that's true? <clears throat> and I've heard people say it. I've even heard Paul say it. But how do I know it's true? And that takes me two days now of research to make one little footnote, yes. just for one sentence. 
So writing can be very frustrating that way. You're on a roll, and suddenly, because it's a non-fiction book, I have to say, well, I'm Isaac. Saying, okay, doing this is going to abduct the shoulders. How do I know that's true? <laughs> okay, so I got to stop and work it all out. Or do I yeah. internally rotate or externally rotate the arms and down dog? Right? Some people right. say always, you know, you pronate the hand, but you externally rotate the upper arm. But I'm realizing, well, for some people, that's a good idea if you have impingement here. But yes. for other people, it's better to internally rotate the arm because internal rotation allows yes. you to press more, you can pronate more. So saying something yes. just stops me. So writing about it really is my education. It's the way to help me learn more. <clears throat> Beautifully said. That's so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, um, what do you hope people take away with the mythology? Like, are you hoping that that's a compliment <clears throat> to people's own spiritual development or their yoga practice? Like, did you offer mythology in your own classes? Would you tell mm. the stories? Like, how do those things coincide? One of the lovely things about teaching in yoga is you have time and you've got a captive audience. <laughs> you've got them you in the course for five yeah. minutes, several times for an hour, an hour and a half. So what I would do when I was teaching at the studio that Claire and I know well, more in its passing, Semper Viva, I would teach in yoga there Sunday nights. Yes. In the first week of the month, while they're in the poses, I would explain the biomechanical aspects of yoga. The second week of the month, I'd be talking about energetics and how certain stresses can create a piezoelectric effect which causes electricity to flow through the water-filled fascial spaces. We call them meridians and acupressure. The third week of the month, I'd be talking about mindfulness practices, uh, quoting Thich Nhat Hanh and Charlotte Joko Beck and other teachers. The fourth week of the month, I would share stories. And this would be my time to talk about Joseph Campbell's teachings. And then the next month, I'm back to yes. the same sort of cycle. So I would definitely share these stories with my captive audience. And the people that hated this, because I'm always talking, which is kind of strange because I'm a, quite an introvert. You, know, you, you won't find me out and about and doing things with people that put me on a yoga mat and suddenly I won't shut up. And yin yoga should be a quiet practice. <laughs> Usually I leave the last 15 minutes in quiet, but for the other time, I'm talking like crazy. But I do find that's a time when I can share a lot of these stories. But the real takeaway I want to give people with these stories is you have a choice which map you follow. Now, we all have maps. Yes. They're put into our mind when we're three years old, four years old, by our parents, by our schools, by our society, by our friends. And these maps dictate how we navigate life. But imagine you have a map you follow and you're always getting lost. It would be very frustrating. But if you realize that you can choose to use another map, like I can choose to use the Western dualistic map. There is God, the creator, and there's I, his creation. I am not yes. divine. I'm not God. I am divinely created. I'm here to serve God. My task of task in this spiritual practice is to come into relationship with God. Now, if you're Christian, you do that through Christ. If you're a Muslim, you do it through the Ummah, the community. If you're Jewish, you do it through the yeah. The minion, the ten, ten adults. But you have to come to a relationship with divinity. But if you go to the East, and you say namaste, it means the divine in me says the Lord's the divine in you. If you go up to someone in India and say, I'm God, they'll shrug and say, so what? So am I. What's your point? <laughs> if you go up to someone in the West and say, I am God, 
he'll string you to a tree. Because that's the highest yeah. price. Blasphemous. Yes. But there's times when we want a non-dualistic viewpoint that we're all one. Yes. And that map works for a lot of people. But there's times to have a non-dualistic viewpoint where the divine is separate. Mm-hmm. I'm divinely created. Mm-hmm. Now, if you only grew up with mm-hmm. one map and you found that you know, spiritually I feel lost, well, here's another map that you can choose. And the reality is no map is correct. No map is the territory. A map of Vancouver is not Vancouver. <laughs> so just because I give you this map and yeah. say here's a non-dualistic map, it's not right. It's not true. The point of a map yeah. is to be useful. If this map gets yeah. you to... And it tells you more about the right. map maker than yes. it does about the map, about It'll the territory. Help you get to where you want to go. Speaking. But if you're always getting lost, then choose a different map. Yes. So I can choose the Western map yes. of duality. I can choose the Eastern map of non-duality. And I have no problem with that. Like in yoga, we have this thing, hatha. Hatha yoga is made up of two syllables, ha and ta. Ha means sun, ta means sun. moon. Except Jessakachar, Satyananda, Shivananda, all said ha means yes. moon. Ta means sun. Yes. You think they could agree at least on that. Does ha mean sun or moon? <laughs> well, it depends on the map, depends on the teacher. So is Uriana Banda the, the Patabi Joyce Uriana Banda or is it the younger Uriana Banda? So we have these different yes. ways of seeing these things. I don't worry about that anymore because they have different intention, they're different maps. Yes. So that's what my mythology teaching that I like to think is. You can choose these different maps, these different models. Don't worry if one doesn't work all the time. Bernie, what are some of the, the books that you're reading or some books you would recommend for our listeners? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> It depends on which sort of topic. I mean, I'm fascinated with the topic of free will. And if you want to get into that, it's a good uh, one. Sam Harris. Sam Harris wrote a very pithy little okay. book on free will. And then his wife just came out with an, another book on consciousness. So I'm always fascinated with consciousness research. So Sam Harris, I mm-hmm. very much admire that man. Thich Nhat Hanh, if you want to learn about mindfulness, read that. Mythology, Joseph Campbell's there. Uh, anatomy and stuff like that. Get everything you can from Paul Grilly and... And, but again, he didn't write many books on that, so you have to watch his DVD. No. Um, so there's just so many different ways this can all go. Um, I just finished reading a book called The Bone Collector. You... Yeah. Uh, and it was by a woman who's, uh, sorry, not The Bone Collector, that's a, that's a novel. This was written in bone, written in bone. This is from uh, a forensic scientist in the UK who is called to crime scenes and has to figure out what happened based on the shape of the bones. The bones. So that was okay. kind of interesting. Um, but you know, there's so many things. And you can see behind me, you know, my shelf is just full of books, and that's all that will fit there. I've got boxes mm-hmm. of other books there. So I'm always pulling them out and referencing them. Yeah, a lot of our listeners have been asking about, uh, about different books, so mm-hmm. that's why we thought you might be a, a good <laughs> source of, of some uh, new books that people mm-hmm. can dive into. Um, yeah, because the mythology complements the practice so elegantly. Clara, you also bring in mythology, and it's wonderful, like even just the reception of people, like anatomy. I love learning about the anatomy, but when teachers bring in other elements that have created their spirituality or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. it's you're right, mm-hmm. you have a podium to introduce new concepts to people where otherwise they may not have... Um, like, I didn't know anything about Eastern practices. I was raised right. Christian, didn't like it, and didn't really know otherwise until 
yoga. And I remember uh, Clarissa uh, Piccola, who wrote uh, Women Who Run With the the Wolves. Um, Yes. Uh, She talked about how stories are, uh, listening to stories are so important because it puts us in a different mindset. And so it's actually uh, very, very powerful to hear to hear stories and to hear myth because because we're moving into the imagination it mm. uh it kind of shifts our it shifts our perspective and allows us to kind of think bigger versus uh thinking tangible and since it, we know that it is a myth or a story um we let go of kind of uh, what is the word uh we allow for we allow for things that wouldn't necessarily happen yeah. into reality happen in myth right and so it kind of it taps into the it taps into a different part of our of our and mind her writing is so specifically valuable imagination. Joseph Campbell pointed out himself almost all of our traditional myths are male myths we don't have a lot of good yes. myths, myths for women and I have a whole chapter in my book from yep. the Gita to the Grail just on myths for women and what we're lacking and some of the newer myths that are coming yes. up nowadays you see that women are starting to become more mythic uh, but there's not a lot of historical women myth. when you look at women in historical myths like Athena or whatever they're basically men the masculine yes. women. Yes. And they're just written by men yes. for men. So. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. The writers tell the myths tell you right, a lot about right. the writers. Yeah. By the way, that book uh, from the Gita to the Grail, it's it's kind of out of print right now in hard copy. It's coming out early next year in soft copy, but it's still available in ebook. Okay, yeah. on the Kindle. Great. Great. Which is what yes. I'm reading these days. Uh is more Kindle just uh, because uh, when feeding my, my little one, it's yes. the easiest thing to hold on to. <laughs> or if your bookshelves are full. Yeah. My shelves are, I'm like, I can't buy any more books. Yeah, I have no room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Bernie. This was yeah, amazing. I'm like, we could, we could keep going. Um, and so are you, are you teaching right now? Can pe- where, what are, where can people find uh, you? I'm only teaching uh, the yin yoga teacher trainings. And that's online. Okay. And that's through Yoga International. Okay. When Simpre Viva shut down, okay. we had to find out another way yes. to uh, let people who were signed up for those courses still attend. It's not the same as being online, but there's advantages too yeah. in that there's a yeah. permanent recording of this and people don't have to fly to Vancouver and pay for hotels and so forth. So, yes, yeah. so four times a year, I have a one week, 50 hour Yin Yoga teacher training with Diana Bats through Yoga International. And they've done some other courses of mine that are available there as well. Yes, everybody, uh, as Bernie mentioned, we taught at the same studio and you were loved by all, all and many in terms of the classes, but also of the trainings. People came from all over to um, to receive from you. And uh, just listening to you speak right now, it's like such a, you're, you're so rich with so many different facets, which I feel like really makes for, I think, a holistic practice, right, is, is both using both sides of the brain and inspiring both on an anatomical level as well as a mythical level which is like the coolest part about yoga yeah so thank you um that this was amazing i'm inspired uh and uh yeah yeah wonderful we uh just had my father speaking last week in the 300 hour my last um module and myth is his his passion so it's just cool we talked a lot about the map and the map maker um and about how to create our own Mm -hmm. myths and how that's important in terms of the hero of us leaving what we call the village compound in order to find ourselves and to be able to come back and share the knowledge with our community. So (laughs) exactly, exactly. 
Um, so thank you, Bernie. Oh, thank you. Um, we'll have a bunch of, we'll have all of uh, any information we'll have up on, on the write-up so you can find Bernie. And Bernie's written, as you said, a couple of books, which are amazing. I would definitely recommend uh, From the Grail to the Gita, just because myth is, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like we should be getting more into that, especially at this mm-hmm. time, I find. Um, this year is really is getting us to shift, I think, in a large way. And I think myth has a wonderful, can create a wonderful impact in terms of creating change. Right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and, uh, stay safe, yeah. everyone. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. You. you too. Thank you, staff. And uh, yeah, the rest of you guys enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Practice with Clara app. That's mine. I've created almost 100 yoga classes for you to do at home or on the go. And they're available to you on your favorite device, including mobile, desktop, and TV. These classes include vinyasa, slow flow, hatha, restorative, yin, mantra, meditation. I also just had a baby, so I created prenatal yoga for all four trimesters. So head over to clararobertsoss.com slash join to learn more. Or search for the Practice with Clara app at your favorite app store. There's a seven-day free trial, so no commitment. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast. We've got lots of good stuff in store for you. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.